Good morning and welcome. Please join with me on this morning's call to worship. Spirit of the living God, visit us again on this day of Pentecost. Like a rushing wind that sweeps away all barriers, like tongues of fire that set our hearts aflame, with love that overlaps the boundaries of race and nation, with power from above to make our weakness strong. Come, Holy Spirit. Move over this chaotic world. Come, Holy Spirit. Move over the chaos of our lives. Come, Holy Spirit. Almighty God, who sent the promised power of the Holy Spirit to fill disciples with a willing faith, have mercy on us, forgive our divisions, and by your Spirit draw us together. God will pour out the Spirit on all flesh, and our daughters and sons shall prophesy. Our old ones shall dream dreams, and our young ones shall see visions. And all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Come, Holy Spirit, breathe new life into us, dwell within us. Let us worship God in song.
The Bible tells us that on the day in which Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Let us come expectantly as we bow our heads in prayer. O brooding God, as your spirit hovered over creation in fresh wind and new breath, so let your spirit blow over us with the depth of life and the breath of life as we worship you this day. Take away the chaos of our lives and the tiredness of our souls. Save us, O Lord, from all that would hinder us from having a godly sorrow for our sins, from blindness, which is not aware that we are sinning, from pride, which cannot admit that we are wrong, from self-will, which can see nothing but our own way, and from callousness, which has sinned so often that we cease to care. Make us responsive with eyes open to our own faults, O Lord, and give us hearts which cannot sin in peace and spirits which are moved to regret and remorse. Grant that with true repentance we may truly be forgiven so that as we experience your graciousness and compassion, we may find your love great enough to cover all our sin. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. And now, friends, let us hear the good news. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose from the grave for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. The scriptures assure us that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone and a new life has begun. Friends, let us believe this wonderful good news of the gospel that in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Breathe new 
Please join with me now as we bow our heads in prayer. Holy Spirit of God, who at Pentecost descended with power upon Christ's disciples, sending them out to preach the gospel and to found the church, inspire us, we pray this day, to sustain what they began. We pray for another Pentecost, another outpouring of the Spirit upon your church. Increase in us, our Father, the fruits of the Spirit until all our thoughts and all our desires become obedient unto the mind of your Son, Jesus. Without the power of your Spirit, we are weak disciples, but we are eager to grow in strength and courage, and so we pray for your power and loving presence to break through our well-worn and predictable lives to bring fresh glimpses toward a whole new way of living. Lord, as we mourn this week the 100,000 Americans lost to COVID-19, we pray for families everywhere whose tears stream and lives shake because of losses, unexpected and undeserved. We remember parents and children in places like Nairobi and Nigeria who are starving because of food shortages brought on by this virus. We sadly add the name of George Floyd to that of Amund Arbery and the long list of other victims of the virus of injustice that also so sickens our world. We remember all the unreached people groups across the globe as well, people who do not have access to a church family those who live and work in places that have not yet heard the name of Jesus, much less been presented with the gospel message. Keep us, O oh God, from hardening ourselves to these realities, for we know through Christ that your heart is always turned toward the vulnerable and the wronged. Thank you that we're part of a church that is taking care to protect people against sickness that in providing food for the hungry in Africa, India, the Dominican Republic, and in Chicagoland. 
Thank you, Lord, for a church that cherishes persons of all races and all voices and for a body that fights for greater justice in our world. Even in this time of physical isolation, we pray then that you would grow our hearts toward you and one another and the other people of this world and keep us safe and secure in your word devoted to your mission for the sake of Christ our Lord who teaches us to pray together by saying our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you are new to Christ Church and would like to connect, just click the New Here button below your screen or link to the chat, and we'll be glad to get back to you and get to know you on a deeper level. We're thrilled to have all of you with us and we pray you will be enriched and encouraged by our worship together this morning. We know that most of you are very interested to learn more about how and when Christ Church is planning to reopen our church campuses. This past Wednesday night, our weekly update included a letter from our senior pastor, Dan Meyer, in which he shared his reflections and plans for our reopening. If you aren't subscribed to the weekly update or you missed the letter, just follow the link on the screen and you'll be able to find it once again. We'd also like to invite you to join us next Thursday evening for a very special town hall meeting on Zoom where Pastor Meyer will talk more about our reopening and at that time you'll have an opportunity to ask questions and to share your thoughts as well. Please watch the weekly update and our social media posts for new, more details about how you can participate with us. You know, one of the most meaningful and unexpected gifts I have ever received in my life was from a professor friend of mine from college. Besides myself, our senior class had five economic majors, so we were very close to our professor, Dr. Harry Dixon. Harry and his wife, Marge, were two of the most devoted Christ followers I've ever met in my entire life. They cared deeply about our academic success, but more importantly, they were committed to helping us grow as people and as disciples in Christ. Well, almost 20 years after I graduated, I ran into Harry and Marge at a lecture in Southern California. And even though we hadn't seen each other for many years, they still had a very special place in my heart. The reunion that we enjoyed together that day was just absolutely delightful. It was almost as though no time had passed and our mutual feelings of affection for one another had really not changed at all. At one point, Marge pulled me aside and shared with me the fact that even though we had gone our separate ways after graduation in the late 1970s, 
Harry had made it a regular habit of praying for me, not only weekly, but sometimes daily for all those years. She went on to tell me that he had a prayer book in his office that contained the names of all of his present and former students. And my name had been in that prayer book for 20 years. And Harry was faithful in praying for me on a regular basis that entire time. That was an unexpected gift that was so meaningful to me that I shed a tear that day standing in that fellowship hall with those two dear friends of mine. I remember feeling overwhelmed with gratitude and I could not help but sense the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit as that Spirit touched our hearts very deeply. An unexpected gift of love that falls afresh upon another can be a powerful witness to the one who gave it all so that we might live. So who could you bless with an unexpected gift of love? What simple yet profound gift could you give to someone today or this coming week? Maybe it's a card that you'll send or a call that you'll make or an email to someone reaching out to that person that doesn't expect to hear from you. Maybe you could start praying for the person in your life who is a long way from God or the family member who really rubs you the wrong way. Maybe you could simply begin by asking God to show you how to love other people in unexpected ways. When you give to Christ's church, you're giving a gift of unexpected love to thousands of people who call this their spiritual home and the hundreds of thousands who are blessed by the ministries we support around the world. Today, you can give on your cell phone by texting the words CCOB or Butterfield and then entering the number that you see on your screen. Or you can give by using the Give button on our website or by dropping or sending a check to the church. Your support will support unexpected blessings for people here in our own church community, in the many neighborhoods we touch that surround us, and even around the globe in places near and dear to the heart of God. So as we approach the throne of grace to offer our gifts to the Lord, let us praise him for the most unexpected gift of all, the gift of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the unexpected gift of eternal life for those who put their faith and trust in him. Thanks be to God.
Good morning. It is great to be together on this fine day and worshiping God together as we continue our study of one of the most marvelous books of the Old Testament. I think that of all of the fabulous life lessons that gush from the book of Ruth, perhaps none is so timely as the picture that this story gives us of a man and a woman behaving beautifully toward one another. We've had our share of people behaving badly in that relationship over the years, haven't we? We've seen powerful men sometimes taking advantage of women. We've seen attractive women sometimes using their gifts to manipulate men. In fact, if you want a very good binge watch during this season, check out the Apple TV Plus series, The Morning Show. It stars Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon and Steve Carell, and you'll see just about every possible shade of dysfunction on the hashtag MeToo, SheToo, HeToo continuum. When it comes to male and female relationships in the workplace, at home, or among friends, that program is enormously convicting and thought-provoking television. You'll walk away thinking, in my relationship with the opposite sex, how can I do better? Some of you may be wrestling with that question in this COVID season too. Uh, wives and husbands have found themselves together a whole lot more than usual these days. There are going to be, I suppose, a lot of babies born in the first quarter of next year, but there are also going to be a lot of people in counseling or court. Because without some of the distancing distractions that normally help to buffer the natural differences between two people, Men and women, and not just on TV, sometimes behave badly. Maybe you've discovered that for yourself. Maybe you just need to look at your partner today and say, you know, this is a hard period. I'm sorry we haven't been at our best, but we're gonna get through this together. We're gonna come out the other side. God brought us together for a good reason. So let's renew our commitment to be kind to one another and see what God can do. Let me just say again, that's why I really love the book of Ruth. If you want a picture of two people under pressure finding a way to treat each other beautifully, look no further than the story of Ruth and Boaz. When we left the story last week, you may recall that Ruth was out gleaning in the field. She was gathering up the scraps of the harvest so that she and her mother-in-law, Naomi, would have something to eat. Suddenly, a guy named Boaz, the owner of the actual field she's working in, arrives. And Boaz takes an interest in Ruth. He is her distant kinsman by marriage. So it's actually appropriate that he should have some concern for her welfare. Caring for the relatives of a deceased kinsman was actually part of the Israelite family tradition. But Boaz's kindness towards Ruth goes beyond the usual. He offers her special protection against the lustful approaches of other men. And he sees that she not only has a job, but is paid in grain beyond the normal measure. We begin to get this sense that for a powerful guy, Boaz is an unusually good man. Or he at least has the wit to recognize what a remarkably good woman Ruth is, or maybe both. Like a lot of us during this season in our life, from the viewpoint of Ruth and Naomi, the future seems very far from secure. And that explains why at the start of chapter three, 
we hear Naomi shifting gears. We see her advocating the measures that she does. One day, Naomi said to her mother-in-law, or rather one day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? From the very beginning, it's been clear that Naomi thinks that the long-term security of her daughter-in-laws lies in their getting married again. Earlier on in the story, Naomi had said, may the Lord grant each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. The word rest in that verse from chapter one is the Hebrew word manuha. And a variant of that very same word appears again here at the start of chapter three. And it is translated to be well provided for. When you know that you're well provided for, when you know that someone really cares as much about meeting your needs as you do and is committed to that, that assurance gives you the freedom to let go of your anxiety. It allows you to slow down your frantic churnings and labors. In short, it enables you to find rest, as Naomi puts it. That, I think, is what marriage at its best is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be a circle where your partner and you are equally committed to seeing the other well provided for, and in that sense, finding a different kind of rest than could be found anywhere else. Naomi and Ruth have yet to find that sort of rest in their own individual lives or in the life they're sharing together. They're still both widows. They're still living off of the gleanings, the charity of other people. It's a hand-to-mouth existence at best. And for this reason, perhaps, Naomi now recommends a more aggressive strategy in order for her daughter-in-law to gain some kind of greater security and and better kind of rest. So she asks Ruth uh, rhetorically in verse 2, is not Boaz, uh, with whose servant girls you have been uh, working, a kinsman of ours? Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with a good friend or a family member whom you suspected actually had some romantic feelings for somebody else but wasn't talking about it. I don't know, maybe you've dared to name the unstated reality and then you've seen the other person get all flustered or or smile in a way that admitted the truth. Well, I think that is what Naomi is actually doing here. She's asking a probing question. Back in chapter 2 and verse 20, when Naomi calls Boaz a kinsman redeemer, she uses the Hebrew word goel, and that suggests a family relationship. Here, however, in verse 2, she uses a different word for kinsman. And the word that she uses comes from a Hebrew root that means to know, as in to be intimately or romantically acquainted with. Naomi asks, so do you know Boaz, your kinsman? You've probably seen enough romantic comedies. Uh, Ruth in this uh, scene is a little bit like Sandra Bullock and Boaz is Ryan Reynolds. You've got to assume that when Naomi asks the probing question she does, Ruth actually blushes. And so Naomi goes on. Uh, She says, tonight, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. 
So here's what I want you to do. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Now you need to know that washing, perfuming, and getting dressed up were not every weekend occurrences in the ancient world. And they probably aren't for us anymore right now, are they? Uh, how many of you are watching uh, this worship time in sweats? <laughs> in, in any event, these phrases suggest an elaborate and unusual process of preparation. And when people in the ancient world went through this kind of process of preparation, it was typically a signal of one of two events in their life. First, it might have been the sign of an end to a period of mourning. In the Old Testament, for example, we read of how devastated King David was at the death of the child that he had by Bathsheba. And after a period of grieving, the Bible says that David got up from the ground washed and put on perfumed lotions and changed his clothes. The same ritual, washing, perfuming, changing clothes. So maybe Naomi is encouraging Ruth to do these things in order to make it clear to Boaz that she's finished mourning her husband's death, that she's ready to move on, that she's available just in case he hadn't pressed the relationship further out of respect for her time of grief. Some of you out there are in a season of life where you're sort of interested in somebody perhaps, but there's been a season of grieving, so you want to be careful. The other occasion, often signified by washing, perfuming, and changing clothes, was the beginning of preparations to be married. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God speaks of the way that he prepares his bride Israel for marriage. And he says, I bathed you with water. I put ointments on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. On this basis, maybe Naomi here is telling Ruth that she shouldn't be coy about her affections for Boaz. Sometimes a man or a woman just won't open up their heart to another until they sense that their affections will actually be returned. So Naomi says, in effect, get gussied up, Ruth. <laughs> Make it clear that you want more than a distant familial relationship with this guy. Let me just pause here for a moment and offer some practical application of this text to real life if I can. I, I hope you know this and will teach it to your kids. But when you love somebody or you want to show them how much you care, then you've got to do things that demonstrate it. To put it in a nutshell, love plans out its display of affection. I got a recent reminder of this when our son Cole decided to ask his beloved Heather to marry him. He planned an elaborate set of experiences that reproduced what she had told him a year before constituted her perfect day. And he planned everything to give her that kind of day, punctuated with an invitation to marry him. When my wife Amy wanted to show me how much I meant to her, I remember how she arranged this amazing weekend in Laguna Niguel that I will never forget. How might you plan a display of affection for someone you love.
Think about that. Who, who is it that would be just overwhelmed if you took the time to plan carefully some kind of display of how much you'd care? In any event, Naomi goes on to lay out more of the strategy here. And she says, you know, after you're looking your best, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he is finished eating and drinking. And the reference to the threshing floor is a reference to a place of work and preoccupation. Uh, when I was in college, I actually worked in an offshore oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. I worked for a season on what was called the drilling floor. The drilling floor was a place of incredible activity and frankly peril. There were massive hydraulic tongs being used to move these huge 60-foot lengths of, of pipe. There were gauges that had to be carefully monitored to measure the pressure of the oil in the hole that we were drilling. And when you were on that floor, you needed to be totally focused or bad things could happen to you, to the people around you, to our economy. And it took tremendous focus. It took a lot of energy to work the drilling for floor. And I would say that in ancient times, it took serious investment to work the threshing floor too, the place where the stalks that had been harvested were processed into the ground grain that could feed a nation. Some of the people that you love or need to love more explicitly are under tremendous pressure like that. You may not understand all that goes into what they do. You may not really grasp how complex is that profession they're doing, but trust me, they are working the floor. It takes everything they have. It takes a lot out of them. I've had a chance to watch how true that is in my wife's own work as we've been at home together in this season. You and I may need to appreciate more of what others are carrying. We may need to show them that we appreciate how hard they work and what it takes from them. So here's another takeaway. Remember, love shows respect for the commitments of the beloved. Naomi goes on here to counsel even further. She says, go down to the, fresh, the threshing floor, but, but give Boaz space until he's finished working. Let him eat, let him have a drink with his co-workers and friends to, to depressurize from the day. Value the investment, the relationships he has there. Don't resent them. It's taken me a long time to recognize, as I said before, what my own spouse puts into her job and what it takes out of her. I've been too slow to see how important it is to honor the relationships that she has in that context. But this is the kind of respect that men and women, I'm convinced, are meant to show toward one another. We need to honor one another's commitments. So how might you do that even more? How could you give your beloved the space, the affirmation that they need and that they really deserve to fulfill the commitments they are making that helps them produce an even better world? Naomi's speech then goes on from this place and she says, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Uh, during the harvest season, 
uh, workers, including the boss, usually slept on or near the floor where the barley or the wheat stalks were being threshed for their grains. And by the way, threshing is, is beating them up and down and, and uh, taking out the good stuff from them. Uh, and so people would sleep there in this threshing area because the ground was flat where the grain was threshed and, and the gathered stalks or grain uh, made for a natural mattress on which they could sleep. On the surface here, Naomi's advice seems plain enough. She appears to be saying, go visit Boaz after work. Give him space while he's eating and drinking with his friends. Wait till he's heading to bed, then pull the covers off his feet. Why? Maybe so that his muddy boots don't soil his blankets. Then lie down next to him and strike up a conversation. It sounds very innocent. As innocent as it does sound, people hearing this story in ancient times would not have read it the same way. The Hebrew word translated as uncover here can refer to pulling back a cover or gaining a revelation, or sometimes it can refer to the act of disrobing before an intimate encounter. The Hebrew that uh, is rendered here as feet can certainly refer to the things that a person puts shoes on but that same word was also routinely used as a polite way of referring to male or female private parts. That's a fact, of course, buried by virtually all English translations. The phrase, lie down with, that Ruth uses could certainly mean to simply recline, but it was also frequently used as a euphemism for coupling. And the term threshing floor was certainly a literal place, but the term was also used in ancient times for a place of erotic encounter. I know that when we read scripture texts like this, it's always tempting to sanitize them. Uh, people will bend over backwards to give a text a, a spiritual spin that elevates it above a, a merely physical fence, sense. But you know, that is understandable. We also live in an age of such appalling sexual promiscuity and so, so many distortions of sexual appetites that we naturally shy from any interpretation of the Bible that seems to condone eroticism. Uh, we rightly discern that our own society has gone somewhat crazy on this point. And we don't want to read the Bible as if in any way that is being supported. In Old Testament times, though, Sexual mores within the community of God's people were different than they are within the Christian community. While adultery and intercourse and incest and a range of other sexual behaviors were clearly identified as sins, polygamy was actually allowed. Sexual contact uh, during the engagement period appears to have been accepted. And precisely when courtship became engagement, is a little misty based on the biblical text. There are a variety of cultural reasons why certain behavior was condoned by God in Old Testament times and why since the coming of Jesus Christ, God has called his people to live by a more mature standard. Suffice it to say that when we read here what might seem to be a mother-in-law instructing a younger woman in the art of romancing an older man it is probably okay to read it that way. 
rather than avert our gaze or pretend that she's talking about some kind of quaint Israeli custom having to do with foot care. Now, I suppose it's even possible to read this text and to conclude that Naomi, in her desperation, was actually calling Ruth to engage in a sinful act of seduction. It wouldn't be the first time in scripture that God chooses to bring ultimate good out of what human beings in their sinful foolishness do wrong. In any event, the the text suggests that Ruth listened intently to Naomi's counsel. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. It's interesting to note that in chapters two and three, Ruth refers to herself as Boaz's subordinate three different times. Each time, however, she uses a different Hebrew word. And with each usage, the word that defines her is progressively more familiar and intimate. In chapter two and verse 10, Ruth calls herself a nokria, a foreigner. In chapter two, verse 13, uh, she gives thanks that Boaz has treated her like a shifa, a, a family servant. And here in chapter three and verse nine, Ruth calls herself an ama. An ama, scholars believe, was a very high status family servant, one actually eligible for marriage into the master's household. This, by the way, is the trend line of scripture. God's word clearly calls men and women out of the false and subjugating hierarchy that the fall brought on into the egalitarian rib-to-rib helpmate relationship that God intended at the creation. And we see this partnership imagined in the story of Ruth and Boaz. So Ruth goes on to say, Spread the corner of your garment over me, Boaz, since you are a kinsman redeemer. I suppose, again, it's possible Ruth is just asking Boaz to keep her warm on a cold night. But it's also possible, and more likely, that Ruth is asking Boaz here to exercise the tradition known as levirate marriage, as I touched on in the very first sermon in this series. For those who missed that particular lesson, levirate marriage was an institution in which the brother or maybe the closest kinsman of a deceased man was called to marry the bereaved wife and to adopt her children as a way of redeeming them from the poverty and the despair that usually followed such tragedy. Boaz clearly saw Ruth's actions and words here as an affirmation of him as a man in the best sense of that term as somebody worthy of trust and intimacy. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. 
This kindness is greater than that which you showed me earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. What strikes me about this exchange between Boaz and Ruth is how vulnerable and honest it is. Do you notice that? You've got Ruth saying here, in effect, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm alone in every possible sense. Please spread your cloak over me. And you've got Boaz saying, I know you could attract all kinds of younger, stronger, maybe better looking men, Ruth, but the fact that you would kindly turn toward me blows me away and blesses me more than I know how to say. Here, I think, is the takeaway from this encounter. The very best kind of love is vulnerably honest about what it wants or values. It doesn't deny or cover up what it hopes for. It is willing to blurt out the deepest truths of the heart despite the risk, as Ruth and Boaz do here. So here's my question. Do the important people in your life know what you need from them, what you value uh, about them and about what they can do for you? Have you dared to describe what you wish would happen in your relationship and why that matters to you? In other words, how could you and I be more like Ruth and Boaz in the pursuit of what we truly desire? In the story that we're studying here, Boaz hears what Ruth asks. And, and, and to her likely wonder and surprise, he actually moves to meet her desire. Again, Boaz says, and now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Boaz promises here to see that Ruth gains the redemptive relationship she seeks. He commits to marrying her himself or to seeing that somebody honorable does if he isn't the best person. And Boaz's words about Ruth's character are his way of telling her that he knows that this encounter they're having isn't ultimately about a lonely widow looking for sexual warmth or about a young woman looking for a sugar daddy. Love, real love, prizes noble character above every other quality. Boaz knows that Ruth is a woman of honor. That she's looking to join her life in every way with a man of honor. And isn't that what we most want for ourselves in our most important relationships? To be people of noble character, to be paired with others also striving for the same. Is there anything better? Last week, I, I married a beautiful young woman and a man, and a great guy in a backyard in Oak Brook, just a handful of us on a sunny day. Uh, one day, and I reminded them of this, she will not be the statuesque beauty she is today. One day, he will not be the, the chiseled hunk he is uh, or was on that day. But if she or he is someone who has, through their relationship with Christ 
and, and their engagement in the life of the church developed an even more noble character than each of them, I said to them, will be profoundly blessed. We know from Ruth's care of Naomi, uh, amazing work ethic, courage, humility. We know that Ruth is a person of remarkable character. Uh, that Boaz is also such a person is made all the clearer by what he says next. He says, although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Apparently, there was nearby another kinsman to Ruth's deceased husband who was an even closer relative than Boaz was. And Boaz here is saying, I don't want to disrespect him. I don't want to disrespect Ruth's best interests or my own good name by stepping in where that other person might more appropriately play a role. So Boaz goes on to say, stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning, Ruth. So she lay at his feet until morning, the text says, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Right here, we see another one of the most beautiful behaviors of the kind of love that God wants to see characterizing you and me in our dealings with one another. Love honors the feelings and interests of others before thinking of its own. Boaz says, in effect, if this other guy is more worthy than I am, if he is better for you than I am, so be it, Ruth. I just want the best the best for him, the best for you. I don't even want anyone whispering about you because they saw you leaving the threshing floor. What an incredible heart the man has. To what extent is your relationship with the people closest to you characterized by that kind of otherwardness, that kind of selflessness? Would you join me in praying that God would grow this kind of Christ-like orientation in you and in me. The final act of love that gets displayed in this chapter was Boaz's determination to bless Ruth and her family with food. I think it's a reminder to us about one of the other characteristics of godly love. Love provides material support to its beloved. Love generously gives of its resources to move others toward flourishing. Is that your pattern? Is that my commitment to? What's the evidence of that? Boaz also said, bring me the shawl, the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back uh, to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her, 
and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. We may never know all of what happened on that threshing floor, but we certainly know enough. In the middle of the night, love got displayed in technicolor there. The even more important truth I want to underline is that God shows his love for us in all of these ways. The love between Ruth and Boaz is a reflection of the loving heart of God and the way he treats you and me. So how could these loving commitments that God displays motivate and define the way that we behave towards each other in coming days? The morning after that must have been one of overwhelming feelings and incredible suspense for Ruth as for Boaz, I imagine. The delirious tension must have been all over his face and hers. Maybe that's why uh, Ruth's mother-in-law offers this word of assurance. Naomi has said, wait, my daughter, just wait until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And I want to invite you to come back next week and learn exactly how the matter did get settled. Let me leave you, however, with one final thought to take with you. Sometimes it's hard to wait for the unfolding of the next part of God's good plan for our lives. Sometimes the day of suspense is actually a very long one. We're living through that now. But hold on to this thought, said the Apostle Paul, no stranger to enduring hardship and uncertainty himself. Paul says, be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God himself will not rest until the truly most important matters of your life and of our troubled world are settled in his perfect time. Please trust that as we bow our heads together to pray. Lord God, we thank you for this marvelous picture of love and recognize in it, Lord, love of the greatest kind, which finds its source in your character. Enable us to take the lessons of this story and, and plant them deep into our hearts and enable them, we pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to bear fruit, that we might be people of a persevering faith, of an unswerving hope, and of an extravagant love. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.
It's been such a privilege, again, to be in worship with you this morning, and I hope and pray that it has been a valuable time for you, and it is but the beginning of God's unfolding grace and his love in your life this week. Uh, hope that uh, the Lord will be with you in the time since uh, this moment and when we meet again. As you go out into the world, seek out the way of the Lord in all of your goings, humbly lifting up those who may have fallen down. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Heavenly Father and the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit be with you this day and until we meet again and until we stand with Jesus face to face and forevermore. Amen.